Welcome to Fronteras, a program that explores issues at the border and beyond through the lens of arts, culture, and history. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. The flight to freedom for enslaved people in the South wasn't just to the North or to Canada. It was further to the South, to Mexico. Mexico began the process of fully outlawing slavery decades before the U.S. Civil War. It became a beacon of light for people looking to break free from their enslavers in states like Texas and Louisiana. Thousands traveled a southbound underground railroad of sorts to freedom, and that path often crossed through San Antonio. The San Antonio African American Community Archive and Museum, SACAM, recently hosted a symposium, San Antonio in the Fight and Flight for Freedom. It explored the role the city played in either assisting or resisting self-emancipated freedom fighters. Today, we're joined by two of the symposium's key speakers, Dr. Maria Esther Hamak and Dr. Michaela Audane. Hamak is a Mexican scholar and an assistant professor of African-American history at The Ohio State University. Audane is an associate professor of African-American history at the College of New Jersey. Hamak says this history of the flight southward to freedom is relegated to the back pages of history and was little known even to her. Well, to be honest, when I started college here in the United States, I didn't know anything about anything. <laughs> and I actually was sitting in a history class, the history of the American South, no, the history of the Old South, taught by Dr. David Denard at East Carolina University. And we were talking about the Underground Railroad. And I remember him talking about Harriet Tubman and talking about freedom in Canada. You know, I was an immigrant to the United States, grew up in Mexico, went to school in Mexico. All I knew about Mexican history, honestly, was that, well, in, in this respects of slavery, was that Mexico had abolished slavery in 1829, uh, about 30 years before the U.S. And so for me, when we were talking about Harriet Tubman and freedom in Canada, it was logical to ask the question, ooh, so who was the Harriet Tubman who led people to Mexico and how many people went to Mexico? And my uh, professor, instead of telling me the answers, he basically looked at me and he said, that's a very good question, Maria. If you find out, let me know. <laughs> uh, and so that sort of thrusted me into trying to figure out those answers. And here I am trying to figure out those answers. So there really was no Harriet Tubman, so to speak? Ah, uh, I have found several, not just one that we're doing similar work to the work that Harriet Tubman did. Well, you mentioned where you came from. Where did you come from that you did not have this previous knowledge of history? So I grew up in Los Mochis, Sinaloa, Mexico, in uh, northwest Mexico. And uh, most of the history that is taught in elementary school and even high school is um, basically the national narrative, the national patriotic narrative of Mexico that is produced by La Secretaría de Educación Pública, which is the the entity that designs all history books for schools. But the history that is taught is mostly whitewashed as well. And even our independence heroes, even our Black Mexican heroes are portrayed as light. Even Vicente Guerrero, who is a Black Mexican, and in the records, he is referred to as such, and he identified as such. 
he's always portrayed as uh, in the paintings or in the images uh, as very, very white. These are histories that I certainly didn't know growing up in Mexico. Well, it seems like a very commonplace practice to whitewash histories from all over the world. You've already given me an idea for a whole other show. But Michaela, can you tell us how you became interested in the enslaved people who escaped to freedom to the South? So I, too, was an undergraduate student, and I was in a class called Narratives of Enslavement. And all we did in the course was read about people who had escaped slavery and written their narratives after the fact. And so uh, we read about Henry Box Brown. He was enslaved in Richmond, and he mails himself in a crate to Philadelphia to become free. And so that made me first start to think about how enslaved people thought about escape and what ways and ingenious ways in this sense, they tried to use whatever they had access to, to try to be free. And then as the course went on, we started talking about slavery in Louisiana. And so it made me start thinking about how people farther away from the North thought about freedom. And I asked the professor if anyone had ever escaped to Mexico, because I thought, walking from Louisiana or Texas to the north would be really long and very dangerous and maybe people wouldn't be successful and I thought well Mexico's closer Uh, maybe people escaped there and the professor didn't know the answer and I went to the library and there weren't really any books about it another professor suggested that I go to graduate school to find out the answer and so uh, I went and I found out the answer about how people from Louisiana and Texas viewed Mexico as a safe haven as opposed to the northern United States because it was uh, much closer, essentially. And not only the proximity, but also, you know, even going back to when it was Spanish territory, as slavery was basically outlawed, you could not bring enslaved people to Spanish territory. And so again, there was that draw to the South that I think was really important for people who knew, because I'm assuming that this type of knowledge, Michaela, was not something that was shared from slave owners to the enslaved people. Right. So enslavers, of course, did not want enslaved people to know that freedom was in Mexico, that there were laws in Mexico. And when Texas was under Spanish control, there were laws that offered enslaved people freedom. And so, of course, enslavers didn't want enslaved people to know that, but they learned anyway, uh, first from like Spanish travelers and then later from Mexicans who would tell them there is freedom across the Rio Grande and tell them how to get there. Well, let's talk about those dangers, Maria Esther, of traveling to the south. I mean, Texas is a big state if you've ever driven through it, but traveling through it on foot or by horseback has got to be absolutely treacherous, especially in those times. Can you tell us a little bit about those conditions that enslaved people looking for freedom had to endure in order to get to Mexican territory? I always like to say that the experiences of individuals who were trying to make it to freedom were unimaginable and unimaginably hard. Not only the terrain posed danger in very many different ways, they had to cross rivers, walk hundreds of miles, suffer dehydration, in addition to everything else, persecuted by slave hunters, trying to find safe havens, water, food, and shelter as they cross this terrain, these environmental spaces. But also, trying to find safe havens was in and of itself a difficult thing to do. 
because you didn't know who was going to help and who was going to hinder your ability to reach the places that you were looking to reach. And for instance, in Texas, there may have been some idea that certain communities would do the helping. We hear a lot about German abolitionists and German communities being anti-slavery and how a lot of the times they were offering shelter to individuals seeking to reach Mexico. And a lot of the times those German communities were in these spaces west of San Antonio, like the Medina River, uh, Fredericksburg. What I found is that when individuals were trying to cross those spaces where there were German communities, a lot of the times instead of finding safe havens, they found communities that alerted slave hunters to their whereabouts. So a lot of people came to be caught in this area that today we consider German communities, right? And they were established there. So what this makes me consider is that individuals may have thought that across this area, they may have, which is across this area between San Antonio and the Mexican border at uh, Piedras Negras, that they were going to find safe havens. And a lot of the times they were caught in that area and returned and lodged in the jail in San Antonio. And so the journeys were treacherous, but also their abilities to find allies was also very difficult as well. Michaela, why is it so difficult to find this information of enslaved people traveling south to freedom? Because you read a lot of writings from individuals about the road north, but why has it been so difficult to track down all this information? Well, one of the biggest reasons is that the abolitionist movement wrote extensively about the people that they assisted and then the people who received assistance from members of the abolitionist community wrote about their experiences. And these materials are now widely available. Anyone can read them uh, these days are much uh, easily accessible. But in uh, Mexico, say for the 1850s, there wasn't an abolitionist movement anymore. Uh, Mexico had their abolitionist movement. It was successful. Slavery ended for them decades earlier. And so there was no one writing about assisting uh, freedom seekers in the same way that people in the North wrote about it. Another issue is the language barrier. So for many people, deciding to study this topic requires you to know Spanish. And so for people who aren't bilingual or know another language, it would be difficult to even learn about this subject just because of the language barrier and the language that a lot of these sources uh, were written in. So those were two of the biggest issues, why this knowledge has been largely relegated to the margins for so long. And then the third reason I would say is there is a very popular narrative of saying there was slavery in the South, but freedom in the North. And so mainly focusing on the relationship between the North and South and not really focusing on how the expansion of slavery changed where freedom existed for enslaved people. And so when you think about slavery as more of a national issue, then this is when you can think about other spaces of freedom like Mexico. But so far, the main narrative has been about the North and the South, as opposed to the Deep South and Mexico. Michaela Audain is an associate professor of African-American history at the College of New Jersey. Maria Esther Hamak is an assistant professor of African-American history at The Ohio State University. When we come back... 
Texas was a slave state, and San Antonio played its part in this dark chapter in history. And when we think about slavery in the United States, San Antonio should be a part of this conversation and this、uh, region in Texas specifically. Our conversation continues next on Fronteras. I'm taco journalist Mando Rayo. On the next Proximo Tacos of Texas, redefining Tex-Mex. Is it Tex-Mex or is it Texas Mexican? We sit down with chef, food writer, and filmmaker Adan Medrano to redefine what Tex-Mex is and isn't. You can find Tacos of Texas on KUT.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fronteras. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Thousands of people flock to the U.S.-Mexico border in search of a better life. It was no different around two centuries ago when enslaved people crossed the Rio Grande to Mexico, where freedom was guaranteed. One former enslaved man, Felix Haywood, told the Slave Narrative Project in 1936, "Quote." There wasn't no reason to run up north. All we had to do was walk south, and we'd be free as soon as we crossed the Rio Grande. In Mexico, you could be free. They didn't care what color you was. End quote. Whether it's enslaved people in the 1800s or today's asylum seekers fleeing north, the Rio Grande was and is the focal point to freedom for millions of desperate people over history. We're talking today with historians Michaela Audain and Maria Esther Hamak. Adain says the parallels shouldn't surprise anyone. So, for enslaved people, they were trying to get into Mexico to have freedom and live a better life. And for people、um, more currently, they're trying to cross the Rio Grande and enter the United States for a better life. And the the river remains one of the biggest challenges in terms of getting to freedom and crossing it. They could be swept away. It's uneven bottom, so some people can be in knee deep water, and then you take a step and you're in neck deep water. There's not a way to cross the river in a, an orderly way. You don't know、uh, what your next step was going to be, and that led to people drowning. Also. The lack of food, the lack of water. We hear stories about people leaving water out for people trying to get into the United States. But for enslaved people, there weren't people leaving out water. So so many people were dehydrated and I think、uh, died because they didn't have access to water、uh, in the same way that some migrants who don't have access to water die in the deserts of northern Mexico or South Texas and Arizona and New Mexico. So we're definitely seeing parallels in terms of people trying to cross the Rio Grande to reach freedom, and they're doing so under horrible conditions,、uh, very unpleasant conditions, just trying to get to a better life and hoping that once they get to the other side of the Rio Grande, that their lives will improve. I couldn't have said it better, and、uh, honestly, we have migrants crossing the border as we speak and facing. Unbelievable hardship, trying to cross, trying to survive, but also today we see black migrants crossing the border. So not just people from all over Latin America, but we have Haitian migrants trying to cross the same border. And if you've seen some of the pictures, a lot of these pictures of Haitian migrants trying to cross into the United States, the hardships that they face being treated as enslaved people were treated less than two hundred years ago when they were trying to. Cross the border. You see these images we had、um, all over social media of Texas Rangers trying to stop them, and the Texas Rangers being on horse, horseback, and、uh, black migrants trying to cross. So it makes this history 
even more relevant than it is uh, to think about that less than 200 years ago, we had people crossing in the opposite direction, but yet these issues at the border continue. And I think that these histories could allow us to have better conversations or offer better solutions to migrant experiences and to the issues that we face today with immigration across these borderlands. Yeah, I think it might have been Border Patrol agents who were on horseback, but the imagery and the parallels in history remain the same. Maria Esther, you and Michaela were recently in San Antonio as part of a symposium hosted by the San Antonio African-American Community Archive and Museum. It was about how San Antonio played a major part in the fight and flight to freedom. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences here and what you might have discovered about San Antonio's role in that movement south. Yes, so I've seen San Antonio or, or perceive San Antonio as this space of where slavery and freedom entwined or intertwined, because even though, you know, there were some lost paths in different times periods that abolished slavery, like when San Antonio was still part of Mexico and later, you know, the governmental powers that be shifted and so it created this space where certainly slavery and freedom coexisted. And the experiences of people across this space certainly were revolved around these two forces being at play. And so what I've seen um, based on the archival documents is that individuals were trying to cross through San Antonio, sometimes uh, moving through this space, trying to get to Mexico and being caught and lodged into the jail. So a lot of the times you walk around downtown San Antonio, you don't see any markers that tell you this history. You know, you see markers that tell you history of people who were sold and bought across all other cities in the American South. But across San Antonio, per se, there are no markers for the people who were bought and sold, for the people who were lodged into jail as we were trying to reach the Mexican border. I found individuals who were definitely there, who claimed their freedom, who escaped the San Antonio jail, and who were who shaped this space, and yet their stories are not told. They're not in any historical marker today, and I think their stories, the experiences of these individuals, need to be better known and, and reflected within San Antonio and its historical markers. Well, Michaela, San Antonio is also still a major trade corridor, and I'm pretty sure it's very eye-opening to know that it also played a part in the trade of enslaved people as well. What have you learned about this area's role? Maria Esther talked a little bit about the German abolitionists who, again, are right here in our San Antonio and Hill Country area. What have you discovered about this region's role in the trade of enslaved people and also in the movement of abolition? So one of the things at the SACAM symposium that I really enjoyed was learning about how local historians are doing this work. Particularly, uh, there were two women who were working on getting markers to designate the old courthouse and the old San Antonio jail as spaces with relationships to slavery. And also uh, there was a man working with the National Park Service who looked at a mission near San Antonio and its role in assisting freedom seekers in Texas. And so I really appreciate how local San Antonians have embraced this history and are beginning to use the archive and local resources to help piece together this very important history about San Antonio and its relationship to slavery. 
So uh, similar to what Maria said, uh, San Antonio and this region was a space of both slavery and freedom. In the 1810s, enslaved people from Louisiana fled to San Antonio, hoping that they would be free there. And in the 1830s, people fled uh, from other parts of Texas to San Antonio, hoping that they would be free there. And then, of course, they actually learned that they wouldn't be free there. So there was definitely this disconnect between how enslaved people thought about San Antonio and what it might bring for them. And then the reality of Mexican officials saying that this wasn't a space of freedom and returning them to their enslavers. And so one of the big things that we should think about San Antonio is it should be included in some of the cities of slavery. And when we think about slavery in the United States, San Antonio should be a part of this conversation and this uh, region in Texas specifically. And then when enslaved people escaped later on in uh, other decades, the 1840s, the 1850s, we're noticing based on the pathways that they chose, based on uh, advertisements that publicized their escapes uh, where they were last seen, we know that they are traveling near or through San Antonio, mainly because of some of the benefits that the city offered. So as you know, there's a river there, and for people who might have gone days or maybe even weeks without an adequate water source. The river provided them with water, provided their horse with water, a place to rest, and also uh, reorient themselves. So San Antonio was even a big city back then. And for uh, many freedom seekers, becoming lost was part of their journey. Even for people who escaped north, you read about people who went left instead of right. They went around in circles. They couldn't find their bearings. And for people going through Texas, so many different terrains, they probably weren't sure where they were going, but coming up on San Antonio reoriented them to where they were and gave them a sense of how close or or how far away they were from Mexico. And so San Antonio becomes an important marker for freedom seekers, even while they're escaping, even when they learn that San Antonio wasn't a space of freedom, it becomes a way to tell them how close to freedom they were. Well, these histories that we're discussing today, they're increasingly more difficult to learn about and even to teach, particularly here in Texas. There's a crackdown on so-called critical race theory in schools, which we know that's not what's being taught. But basically, any conversation about race is being clamped down upon in Texas and in many Republican-leaning states. I'm curious whether either of you have sort of felt that pressure, because we know it's happening in public schools, but it's also starting to creep into academia as well. So I'm wondering if the both of you have felt that political pressure of this on your positions. And I'll start with you, Michaela. So I live in New Jersey. I haven't felt it yet. Uh, I asked my students if they'd heard about what was happening and they told me they hadn't. So I was a little surprised by that. So I changed my syllabus. I'm teaching African-American history this semester. So I changed my syllabus so that we can talk about what's going on in the study of African-American history. But I think that this history is very important to understanding the United States and that everyone should have access to it. Maria Esther? I've experienced some of that pushback, um, mainly because I, I did my PhD at UT Austin. So I was in Texas for many years. When I was bringing up my research and talking about some of the work that I've been doing, I've had individuals say, oh, is this real? Is this true? 
or no, 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 that's not true. Like when I talk about Texas heroes who were very much slaveholders, who's enslaved people ran away to Mexico. When I've talked about those stories, people always say, no, no, there's no way that so-and-so was a slaveholder or so-and-so was a good slaveholder, right? So I get that pushback. But in other aspects, I've also gotten chapters in edited volumes canceled because of what is going on in Texas. It is something that is certainly affecting academia, but also, you know, public scholars, non-academic, independent scholars as well, uh, when they're trying to present histories that challenge the narrative that Texas has protected for so long with so many myths about, you know, the benevolence of slavery or that, no, Texas was not a, a southern state, it was more of a western state. So, you know, I have felt that pushback in certain ways. Well, we know that the nation's history is whitewashed and students are learning in school across the nation a specific type of history. And so even not counting here in Texas, but New Jersey and Ohio, your students have probably gone into your classes. And just like they do in many Mexican-American studies classes here in Texas, I never knew that. How come I wasn't taught that? And so, Michaela, can you tell us your experience about sort of that aha moment that your students have when they take your courses? Right. So yesterday, I actually, we started talking about slavery in New Jersey, and so many students didn't even realize that New Jersey had had slavery. Back to the narrative I said before, if there's Southern slavery, then there's freedom in the North. And so then they began to realize, well, when did freedom arrive in the North? And was it throughout the entire region? And some people uh, were very surprised to learn that their hometown had uh, slavery and uh, that was very dependent on slavery. And so these sort of aha moments are like, for me, is part of what this job is all about uncovering this history that was it should be more wide known in New Jersey considering where we are when you think about the garden state and who was doing this labor to uh, produce the harvest but for many students they learn very little about New Jersey's role in slavery in elementary school and so for college we uh, use this time to talk about slavery in the north slavery in New Jersey and how slavery was a big part of the northern economy and how the North benefited from slavery for 100 plus years before it began to have an anti, more anti-slavery stance. And what about you, Maria Esther? I can tell you two brief things, one with my students and one with uh, Mexican audiences. So I always get Mexican people say, oh, wait, wait, we don't have any Black people in Mexico. And so that, that also shows the lack of knowledge of this history, but also the erasure that um, Black history has experienced in Mexico. And with my students, you know, when I talk about these histories, they do get shocked to know that that Mexico served as a space of freedom like Canada. They also get very surprised that they didn't learn about this, you know, growing up. What I try to tell them is I hope that learning about the stories helps you question or interrogate the meanings of freedom that we have been taught. One of the important aspects of, of this history is to consider what was freedom, who was behind those processes. For instance, Abraham Lincoln free Black people and to say, wait a minute, Black women and children had to fight and secure and wrestle that freedom in and of itself. So I try to make them think about Freedom was never granted, given, or bestowed upon. Freedom had to be taken and wrestled and secured by people who were enslaved themselves. 
Dr. Maria Esther Hamak is an assistant professor of African American history at the Ohio State University. Dr. Michaela Audain is an associate professor of 19th century U.S. history and African American history at the College of New Jersey. Hammock and Audain both took part in a symposium hosted by the San Antonio African American Community Archive and Museum. It was called San Antonio in the Fight and Flight for Freedom. See video from the symposium at tpr.org. Thanks for joining us for Fronteras. Fronteras is produced by Norma Martinez and Marianne Navarro. Our executive producer is Dan Katz. Our editor is Fernando Ortiz Jr. Charanga Cakewalk composed our theme music. Hear past episodes at tpr.org and on the Fronteras podcast. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Hi, I'm Norma Martinez. And I'm Marianne Navarro. On Fronteras, we try to bring you engaging conversations about immigration, the arts, hidden Texas history, the region's rich culture, and stories that are puro San Antonio. And we can't make it happen without you. Whether you listen online, on the podcast, or on the radio, Fronteras is entirely listener-supported. Stories of Black migration south to Mexico. Visiting a Mexican-American studies class in San Antonio. Children's books that touch on difficult migration stories. And visiting an exhibit around the once maligned and now celebrated figure, La Malinche. We learn something new every week and always look forward to bringing you new insights week after week. Your support makes it possible. Please consider a recurring monthly donation in support of Fronteras and all your favorite programs and podcasts. Go to tpr.org or download the TPR app. And thanks for your support.